And it's a great privilege to be with you all this morning to bring to you God's word and to expound upon that. Before I get going and before we turn our attention to the scriptures, let us pray. Almighty God, I thank you for this morning, an opportunity to rest and to just simply be in your presence. And so, Almighty God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would move within this room. Father, that you would bring your word to life for us, that we would live into this commandment, as overwhelming as it may be, to love one another as you have loved us, and out of that, that the world would know that we are your disciples. And so, Almighty God, again, we pray that you would move and that you would be glorified in and through our time together. And we pray this prayer in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. About 10 months ago, I have a friend who wasn't feeling particularly well. And as a result, she pursued the care of a physician. And that doctor sent her to have some blood work done. And as the results came back, she was diagnosed with cancer. And they immediately admitted her to the hospital where she had further tests done and imaging done as well. And those results came back and they showed that she did in fact have cancer. She had a stage four tumor in her liver that had metastasized all over her body. And in particular, they were concerned about her brain. With this information also, they were able to come back and give her a prognosis. Her prognosis was ex extremely grim. They gave her a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months. And as she allowed this information to absorb into who she is and how she wanted to process this and understand this information, uh, of course she prayed for healing, and she was hopeful that God would do something. But she also knew that the percentages were pretty high that that was not going to happen. And so she wanted to prepare for her death. And as she did so, she realized that one of the things that was a priority for her was to gather her family around her. You see, she was a, a daughter. Her parents were still living. She had children of her own. She had two daughters. She had grandchildren. She had sisters. And she wanted to bring people together to bring closure in these relationships. And as she did so, she was expressing to them how she felt about them. She was expressing to them what her hopes and dreams were for them, uh, for their lives. And she also even offered how she hoped they might navigate their grief and their loss of her. And as we open our scripture this morning, we see that Jesus is having a very similar type of conversation with his disciples. Scholars call what we'll be going through the next couple of months of these next three chapters, it's called the Farewell Discourse. And if we open up our scriptures to John 13, we've been focusing on the, the early part of John 13 over these last couple of weeks. And John 13, 1 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And so as we begin to turn our attention to the gospel reading today, which Jonathan read for us, we know that Jesus is expecting and anticipating that his earthly ministry is coming to an end, is coming to a close. And so here he is. We see in verse 31 that it starts with when he had gone out. But he who has gone out is Judas. You may recall in the, the prior events that John kind of huddles up to Jesus and says to him, who's going to be your betrayer? And, and he indicates those motions of the one who I give the bread to who dips his bread in the cup. That's going to be my betrayer. 
And so Judas has left the eleven, and there Jesus is on that last night with eleven. And what he needs to do is he needs to get across his final teachings to them, that they might know how to live without his presence with them. As we all know, so oftentimes the disciples have missed whatever it is he's been trying to convey, and they've had the luxury of him being there to explain it. But instead, what we're going to find is that Jesus is anticipating his death, and so he's offering this last teaching so that they might know how to live and what to expect life to be like without him. As we look at our scripture, there seems to be this new command that we're to love one another as Christ has loved us. And I don't know about for you, but upon my initial examination of this command, it doesn't seem all that new. It seems intrinsic to the gospel message. We see in Leviticus that we're to love our neighbor. Jesus reiterates this teaching in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the apostle Paul talks about our loving our neighbor, and the book of James talks about loving our neighbor. And so I wrestled in what this newness was. And the newness in our passage today is that Jesus comes and he offers a qualifier of how we're supposed to love one another. I don't know about for you, but if I was left to determine what love looks like and I'm measured on it, I'm going to set the bar pretty low to make sure I clear it, right? (laughs) Same probably true of you all as well. But Jesus doesn't give us that opportunity here. Jesus tells us that if we're going to love one another, that we've got to do it like he loves us. And as we delve into our scripture this morning, we're going to find that Jesus loves us sacrificially and he loves us unconditionally. So let's look at verse 31. Again, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And so we get this beautiful picture of the relationship of the Father and the Son. But in the Son's obedience, he is glorified. But as the Son is glorified, so is also the Father. But when I think about God's glory, the first notion that comes to mind for me is not necessarily anticipating his death these last moments. What I think about of God's glory is that Old Testament understanding of God's glory, of Moses wanting to be assured of God's presence with him, and Moses wanting to come face to face, and God telling Moses that he can't do that, that Moses' sinfulness is a barrier to being fully in his presence. And so what God agrees to do is to put Moses in the crag of the rock and to cover his face up, and then as he passes by to remove his hand so that Moses could have some sense of who God is. We also see this in the passage of Isaiah being in the throne room and seeing the back of God's train. But Isaiah nearly comes undone by the majesty, the splendor, the awe of God's glory. And he almost comes undone in that. And so for me, that's my understanding of what I tend to think about when it comes to God's glory. This passage this morning is pointing to a very different type of glory. Again, Jesus is sitting in the moment of anticipating his crucifixion. It's a moment where um, we see that God intervenes for us. As Matt uh, offered on Christ's behalf the absolution of our sins, we find ourselves in a place as believers where we find ourselves with a problem that we can't solve in our relationship with God. 
We find ourselves like Moses and Isaiah of being sinful, and so we can't come into interaction with God's glory as a result of that. And what it's going to take is, is an action on God's part. And so he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to live as one of us, to experience much of what we experience. We see that he experiences loneliness and rejection in his earthly ministry. He knows exactly what it is to, to live as one of us. But yet, he lived the life that we were supposed to live. We know that the penalty of sin is death. And Jesus came and lived the life that we cannot live in obedience to the Father. And out of that, he then goes to the cross, this act of sacrificial love. Not that he had to do it, but he wanted to do it out of his love and obedience for the Father, and, and just as much so for his sacrificial love for us. And we also see the second thing that I mentioned with regards to unconditional. We see that in his interaction with Peter in verse 36, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. <clears throat> Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. I try to put myself in Jesus' shoes in this moment. The anxiety that he might have been feeling in this. We know that Jesus is expecting that his earthly ministry is coming to a close. We know that Judas has left to go out to get the, the crowd that's going to come and to arrest Jesus. And so within my own self, I would be feeling anxious. And the, the Gospel of Luke seems to back me up in this with regards to the Gospel of John doesn't offer this account. But there's a, a time in which, from the point in time that Jesus gets up from the table until the point in time of the arrest, Jesus goes out into the garden to pray. And we're told that he is overcome by anguish. Anguish to the point that God sends an angel to minister to him. And after that moment, Jesus comes back and returns and prays again that prayer that we know of, not my will, but your will be done. The whole idea of letting this cup pass from before me. And, and in that, we see that Jesus sweats like drops of blood. So we see that Jesus is probably experiencing some pretty heavy emotion in that moment. And while my guess is that event is after this, that knowledge is within his heart and within his mind, and he's anticipating the loneliness, the rejection, the pain that's going to come with the cross. And we also see that, and as I mentioned to you earlier, there's got to be this sense of urgency. Judas has left, and he's coming. Jesus knows that. And again, like I mentioned earlier, so oftentimes the disciples have not gotten Jesus' teaching. And so this is important that he get this out so they might know how to go on living without him and what to expect. Because these are going to be the people who are going to be left to tell us about who Jesus is and to establish the church. And so these last teachings are really important that he get across. And so you've got this sense of urgency and anxiety in the same moment and one of your best friends chimes up and pipes up and says, Jesus, I die for you. When Jesus knows good and well, Judas is not going to do that. 
He's going to do the exact opposite, but he's going to deny him. And while the scripture does not explicitly stay, say this, we see that Peter stays in the conversation, this very intimate conversation of the 11 and what's left. And what we're going to see next week in John 14 is that Jesus has gone to prepare a place, and Peter is a part of that. And we also have the luxury of knowing the rest of the story, but there's going to come a time uh, after the resurrection where Peter's going to be reinstated, where Jesus is going to ask him, Peter, do you love me? And he's going to say three times, Lord, you know I love you. And so we see Jesus' unconditional love for Peter in this moment, despite the fact that he's experiencing this anxiety and, and the urgency of the moment. He's still loving, loving Peter in this moment in which he knows Peter's going to deny him. Now, I don't know about for you, but the idea of loving sacrificially and unconditionally can be overwhelming. I mean, just flat out, it's, it's overwhelming. But the beauty is, is we haven't been left to do this alone. The beauty of this passage, as we see in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And so there's this idea that they're not going to have access to Jesus as they, as they know him in this moment. But again, as we're going to see in a couple of weeks, it's in Jesus' departure that the Holy Spirit is sent to indwell us. The Spirit of the very one who is offering this command comes and indwells us and gives us the ability to love one another. We know that the Holy Spirit comes and gives fruit. He gives love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control. And I'm not sure if you call it the first, the first fruit, but it's the ability to love, to love like Jesus. And as I look at the rest of the fruits, they're just mere demonstrations of our love, of how we can go about loving each other as Christ has loved us. Also, the Holy Spirit comes and gives, gives fruit. And yes, this fruit is about developing faith in others, but it's also designed to be an encouragement to us, one another within the body, and to build each other up, and to be a way in which we can love one another as Christ has loved us, sacrificially, unconditionally. And if we do this, the world is going to know that we're his disciples. Now, the really cool part of this passage is just that last part. If we do this, if we live this commandment out, that the world's going to know that we're his disciples. And as, we, as Britt shared with us our mission statement, we are a gospel community that's about making disciples and developing kingdom leaders to be sit on, sent on mission. So what we're all about is having people know and to experience the love of Christ. And so they can watch us and see this. And this has played out in my own life and my time here at Grace, and, and the same being true of my wife. We have two children. We have a son, John Edmund, who is currently five, and we have a daughter who uh, is Caroline, and she is three. There were some complications around Caroline's pregnancy, in which Holly's water broke two months early. As a result, the doctors put her on bed rest. And suddenly I found myself becoming a single father who's working full-time, 
who's providing care for a two-year-old and having to get him here and there and everywhere, but yet at the same time trying to make sure that we're staying connected and supporting Holly in, in her bed rest at the hospital. And what we experienced in that time, excuse me, is this community's love. This community came around and really loved us well. There were people who ran carpool for me or babysat or went to see Holly at the hospital or offered prayers for us. And then as Caroline came home, people brought meals. And the interesting thing about this is this is our primary support system. And I guess what you also need to know is neither Holly or I are from Houston. Are from Houston. She's from Houston. Neither, neither of us are from San Antonio. And so it's not like we've got family built in here. And so as our friends who aren't a part of this community would come to see us and to see the amount of love and support that we had received, they were astounded by it. And we were able to say to them, well, this is what the church does. And out of that, they were able to see your sacrificial love, your unconditional love for us, of sacrificial in the sense of time and resources, uh, unconditional in the fact that Holly and I have done nothing to deserve your love towards us, that outpouring. But they walked away having a sense of what it looks like to be a disciple of Christ, that it looks like loving one another sacrificially and unconditionally. And in that, the world comes to know that you all are his disciples. Now, as I mentioned, the, the mission statement of our church is that we're a gospel community uh, that's about making disciples and developing kingdom leaders sent on mission. And again, the core of that is about sharing the gospel. And I think so oftentimes we, we miss a, a, a very obvious strategy in this. We focus on the way that we're going to serve and really developing the relationships with those people. And please don't hear me minimize those things. Those things are, are extremely important. But so oftentimes we're sent into the mission field together. And so they're also looking at how we relate to one another. A perfect example is the Family Fall Festival is coming up. We're sending 30 people to go serve that community. And yes, the way that we're going to serve them is going to be important. The, the relationships that we're going to develop in that, they are utterly important, and we want them to come to know Christ in and through those things. But I think it's also important that we be aware that they're watching us. They're watching the way that we interact with one another. And our love for each other can transform that experience. If we're willing to love each other sacrificially and unconditionally in that moment for their seeing. And not that we're doing it so much for that, but that it's genuine and that it's authentic. And I'm not sure about for you, but for me, I've found that love is something that needs to be developed. Um, you know, many of us are married. Some of us are dated. Um, and we know that to develop those relationships, it takes time and energy, time spent together of getting to know one another. And so I, I want to leave this morning with a question. I want to ask you, how is it that the Lord is calling you maybe to commit to this community better? Maybe it's to commit yourself to a life group. Maybe it's to commit to an if table. Maybe it's in, with regards to serving loving Lamar or snack packs or just extending random acts of hospitality to one another to get to know one another. Because I think if we foster this love, that when it comes time to love each other sacrificially and unconditionally, that with the help of the Holy Spirit and with our knowledge and love of one another that we've been building, it will come easily 
and naturally. And so in closing this morning, as as we come to the table, and as we hear that Eucharistic prayer that reminds us of Jesus' sacrificial love for us, his unconditional love for us, I pray for you this morning that you will come forward with a a desire for the Holy Spirit to to pour out upon you, and that you'll look and, and begin to pursue ways to develop this love so that we can love each other sacrificially and unconditionally And out of that, that the world will know that we are his disciples. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the gift of your word and for the radical nature of which your son, Jesus Christ, has loved us. We thank you that you haven't left it to us on how we're to love one another. But you tell us that we need to love one another like you have loved us. We thank you and praise you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who helps us to do that and to do that well. For we acknowledge that we are weak and without you we can't possibly do it. And that in the power of your Spirit that others will come to know that we are your disciples. And so as we come to your table this morning and to receive from you anew, our Father, we pray that you would bring to light in which we can better love one another. And out of that, Lord, we pray that yet again the world will know that we are your disciples and that through that you would be honored and glorified and that others would come to you. And we pray this prayer in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.